Welcome to One Million Experiments, a podcast showcasing and exploring how we define and create safety in a world without police and prisons. I am Kiss. My trusty co-host Dame is out of the country at the moment, but rest assured, I'm not alone. I have my pal, my genius collaborator, my partner in decriminalization, Eva Nagao is here. Hello, Eva. Hi, Kiss. It's good to be here and see you again. Good to see you. And uh, I know somewhere off on another continent in his adventures, Damon is just like tortured that he's not recording this intro with us, you know? Like, I know that's at the front of his mind. I'm sure we'll get his notes. He'll be back in the lab soon. Absolutely. In the meantime, we have a wonderful episode for you all today. Eva, who are we talking with? Today, we have a dear comrade, Candace McKinley, who is tuning in from the East Coast and the Philadelphia Community Bail Fund. They've been part of the interrupting criminalization ecosphere for these past couple of years, and I'm super excited to get them in the lab. But the Philly Community Bail Fund started in May 2017 when a group of grassroots organizers in Philadelphia came together as part of the National Mama's Bailout Day. And if you don't know about the National Mama's Bailout Day, check that out at nationalbailout.org. It's a really cool event that happens every year. A whole multitude of organizations across the country try to bail out as many Black mamas as they can so that they can come home for Mother's Day. It's a great way to get activated and connected in this space. So the Philly Community Bail Fund um, participated in 2017 to great success. That garnered a lot of support in the community, a lot of grassroots organizers and volunteers, and they came together and have been organizing as a collective ever since, um, and now as a nonprofit, which we'll hear a little bit about. The mission of the Philadelphia Community Bail Fund is to end cash bail in Philadelphia. And they say, until that day comes, we post bail for residents of Philadelphia who cannot afford to pay for their freedom. We work to bring to light the inequities of the use of cash bail in Philadelphia and advocate for the abolition of bail and pretrial detention in our city. You can find out more and support the Philadelphia Community Bail Fund at phillybailout.org. All right, let's hop into the lab with Candace McKinley. We are here and we are very excited to hop in the lab with the Philadelphia Community Bail Fund. And with us, we have Candace McKinley. So Candace, we like to start all of our conversations with a two-part question. And that question is centered in time and define time how you will. So that can be this day, this hour, this season, this lifetime. But Candace, in this time, how is the world treating you? And how are you treating the world? Yeah, maybe it's just too personal, but um, I would say this time will be like this month. And I, I think it's, um, I think I'm trying to treat the world better and the world is treating me well. Like I just had my grandmother pass um, last week oh. and um, her funeral, I was really anxious going into it. A lot of family I hadn't seen in 20 years. But it was actually a lovely, joyous time to reconnect with family. And now we're planning um, a mini reunion of all the cousins from our three family network. So hopefully that will happen. So it's restorative, regenerative, like out of something that was like, you know, death. Um, So it's it's positive. Yeah, no, that first of all, um, sending love and breath and condolences. I feel like we're kind of in a season where... had a lot of people around me, especially with grandparents, and I'm. It's a complicated journey that's very nonlinear, and so sending you so much love, um, and I love what you said about like from that place that 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 convening can birth so many new things, you know, so many reconnections. I mean, yeah. it, it feels analogous to our movements and the conversations we've been having on this show. Of so much of our work was seeded or prompted from death or transition or loss, um, but then nurtured by these community efforts of love and care and flowers and color and reconnection and and restoration. And so just hearing you frame in your personal life and in our family world, which often gets like bifurcated from the work or how we talk about our internal family dynamics and these like families we create and choose. And so, yeah, that's just a really powerful framing, I think, for us to learn more about the work that y'all are doing and how 
it is shaped by families and the impacts that it has on families. So we want to invite you into our metaphor that we've been fumbling through now for two years, <laughs> one million experiments. We weren't, you know, the most astute science class goers. And audience, I don't know if y'all know this, Daniel went to a science high school. I did. I went to the Bronx <laughs> High School of Science, but but not uh, not by choice. It was, it was the option. Didn't get into the art school or the humanities school. So I was like, all right. Here we are. And so we've been fumbling now through the metaphor of um, the scientific method. And in, in an experiment, the way that the work starts is with a hypothesis. What do you think might be the results? What is a question you are trying to answer? What is a phenomenon you're responding to? Uh, So for the Philadelphia Community Bail Fund, what is the hypothesis of the work? And what was it at the beginning? And what was it when you started it? Yes, thank you. We started about five years, well, now it's going to be six years ago in 2017. Um, And so at that time, there weren't really any bail funds and active in Philadelphia. And we were just getting a progressive prosecutor in the door, Larry Krasner. And so all of me and my progressive friends were just like, our hearts were full with the possibilities of change that could happen in Philadelphia. And so we were very naive. And so we we started because there was a need, because Philadelphia likes to lock up poor brown folk um, at a higher rate than they do in New York City and other jurisdictions. They have a much bigger population, we per capita lock up more and more of our people than any of those places do. Um, But we also felt that like, the problem is that they just don't know what they're doing. The lawmakers and the people in power and the DA and the prisons. And like, if we can demonstrate by posting bail and freeing people that people still come to court and will get good outcomes, that this is what keeps us safe, then they'll have a change of heart and change the system. And so um, now we bailed out 890 people. We spent $7 million in bail, and very little has changed in regards to um, the rate that Philadelphia incarcerates people at. Um, you know, most of our incarceration is driven by pretrial detention because of cash bail and detainers. So, yeah, that, that was a hypothesis then that we could just demonstrate this change we want to see and that'll compel the lawmakers to change. And it was like, yeah, that was nice children, but that's not really what's going to work. And so now we're trying to figure out what our new like theory of change should be. Um, and I think like what we have and some of the other groups in Philly who are working on issues of mass incarceration and like economic justice is that what we have to do is build power. And because Philadelphia likes to lock up so many black and brown people, there are very few um, black and brown families in the city who aren't touched in some way by incarceration. If they personally experienced, been on the cusp of being locked up, they might have a cousin or a neighbor or a family member who has been. And there's a lot of shame around that. Um, There's a lot of trauma because the people who are both the victims of crime, the people who have perpetrated violence, and people who are innocent caught up in the system. And so there's all this trauma and shame swirling around and no one's talking about it and realizing that, hey, we all have this thing in common. This is all harming us in different ways. This is not making us safe. Let's use our collective power to, to change that. So now we're moving, trying to move into a mode of where our main use of posting bail is not so much to show the change we want to see and to convince people to change, but that we want to use it to help us build up a base of of people who can demand um, the change that we want to see. I love that. And and I want to put a pin in the work of moving through that shame, trauma, and stigma and this like power building as the the methodology towards that. Uh, but I want I want to unpack some things I'm hearing from you because I don't want to make assumptions, but they are threads that interest me. You mentioned the context of the progressive prosecutor and you, you named a naivete, I think relative to that political context, but also this notion of, oh, if we just create and present evidence to those in power, 
And if the information is there, the things will just like shift towards right. Um, and so I want you to like unpack those threads. If there's any stories of why that resonates now as naivete, what the learnings were, because I think that these are really significant dynamics that show up in a lot of places in a lot of different cities. Yeah. Especially in a city like Philadelphia, where so many people who are heading up like our prisons and like our police force look like me. That's an assumption that we might be on the same team and have the same goals, but I just think that this is the way that we have to do things to keep our community safe or whatever. And that if they just see something different, then that will change. I'm realizing after doing this for five years, like going to the prisons like several times a week and like seeing the conditions there, noting that Almost like every guard and CEO there is black and brown and like South Asian and just basically in the position of overseers and just how that sort of like haunts my spirit, just witnessing this, realizing that, okay, it's really not what I thought when I began this work. <sighs> Soon after Larry Krasner was elected DA in Philadelphia, I was like part of this group active caught up against the Law Legal Collective. We used to meet at Larry Krasner's office building he owned, like we could meet there. And he represented a lot of us when we got caught up, you know, with the police or whatnot. And so we're like very hopeful that, oh, okay, when he comes in, it's going to mean change in all these levels um, because he he seems to have like the heart of an activist or whatever. He understands like this, and you know, he's been supporting us for years. And to an extent that's been true um, as far as like, trying to hold police accountable for what they're doing, reviewing cases where people were wrongfully convicted and like, you know, getting those people out. You know, so some things are have been great. And those are the things that he's taken a lot of hits for. But then when it comes to the issue of cash bail, it's like not really much has changed except for like service level things. When it comes to Reforms that actually take away power from the system, like some transformative reforms, it's just been like trying to put a bow on like a sack of rotting garbage, basically. You know, like saying like, okay, these 25 offenses will no longer ask for bail on these cases. The vast majority of the people that we have posted bail for, they, they didn't have those charges to begin with. They're, those people really weren't being held on like bail in big numbers, like that wasn't really what was driving the issue, but it looked nice and it looked like a good change to people. And so we would meet with um, the DA, um, I think about monthly, um, this round table that talk about, okay, what's happening, him telling us about our policies, looking at the numbers of people incarcerated, being able to talk to him about like what we're seeing on the ground and what we think needs to change and shift. And also getting an idea about the real opponents he had, you know, who were resisting change. Like there was one meeting where we're talking about like how the bail numbers are not really going down and that how his um, assistant DAs are actually asking for high cash bails in all these cases where they said they weren't going to be asking for bail at all and how they're routinely um, appealing the bails when they think they're set too low and asking for a million dollar bails across the board um, when they're supposed to only be using that bail request for the most heinous charges when it's really thought that the person might flee or be a, a real danger to someone. And so if we just show them the data and the facts, they'll change. Like we were all naive. And Larry Krasner looked at the report and he literally threw it across the table, like oh, <laughs> back damn, at, Larry? you know, huh? I was just saying, damn, Larry, what's up with that? <laughs> for me, I was like, that was like, okay, well, this is just wasting our time because it's really not about like him seeing what's happened. It's not about him seeing, oh, your your ADAs aren't following your policies. Here's the proof. Um, let's do something about it. It was like some things just weren't going to change. And so I think that experiences like that, you know, just help to see that, okay, yeah, maybe our thinking going into it was a little naive. Mm. I think that type of learning is a very shared learning for other people across the country who have been in this advocating for the abolition of cash bail as well. Like we've seen some of those same dynamics play out in, in our comrades' experience here. Um, I don't want to skip past just naming 
like even if they're not going to listen to the data-driven proof, I think we need to just name it a little bit here. And I know you've done this a million times, but it, it seems important of like when we say that cash bail does not make people safer and we say that it causes harm, what does that mean? And what do people need to know that's different from their conceptions of how bail functions? Yeah. So like cash bail is supposed to be used as a surety that a person will return to court do all their court dates to see like their case played out so that they won't run and flee. They won't just miss their court dates. They'll be accountable and show up. That's the purpose of cash bail. It's supposed to be a promise that this person return to court. And so according to the PA constitution, like cash bail is supposed to be set at a a level that a person can actually afford to pay because it's not supposed to be a pretext for holding someone pre-trial is supposed to be used to compel that person to return to court. And so the Supreme Court of um, Pennsylvania, like we helped file a lawsuit with the ACLU about this to ask them to look into the bail practices, especially in Philadelphia County. And they basically said like, yeah, they are charging these high bills that people can't afford, but they're not violating like the constitution, you know, like it's all good. But they did reaffirm in that um, the write-ups they did about it, their decisions, was that the purpose of cash bail is supposed to be set with the intention that the person will be able to afford to pay it um, so that they'll be free to be able to go back home, go back to their jobs, continue with their life, and still come to court to, like, try to, like, see this the case through. Um, but, like, what we see in Philadelphia and a lot of places around the country is that Bails are routinely set too high for a person to pay. Um, and Philadelphia is one of the, is the largest poor city in the country. Um, like we, I think our poverty rate is around like 24%, I think, in the last time I looked it up. Um, and so we'll see a handful of bails come our way where a person can afford a $30 bail. Like there's bail is set at $300 and Philadelphia you have to pay 10% to get out. So they can't afford $30. And that's like very few people. Usually that's people who have severe um, mental health emergencies or who have severe addictions. And it's sort of like, because we don't have this like mental health system safety net anymore, like it's basically used as a a pretext to get them in cages and to get some treatment eventually. But like the most people we see now, our average bail that we're seeing is $10,000. So it's like $1,000 to to get out or like a lot of times like recently we did a bailout and we saw people who had bails of seventy five thousand dollars a hundred thousand dollars fifty thousand dollars and so that means they would have to come up with ten percent of that to get out and so for most people I know even for myself that's really too much to, to pay like I, I can't afford to pay a five thousand dollars to get a jail I just don't have that in my savings and I make a, a decent wage you know I don't consider myself indigent, but like, I don't, you know, have it like that. Most people in Philadelphia don't. And so what we see is that even when a person spends just three days in jail, they can lose their job. In Philadelphia, we often see people losing custody of their children, especially if they're a mother, like DHS gets involved and takes their kids away. They can lose their housing. They can be evicted because they've missed rent or like, um, if if they have like some of that housing that can be endangered. And so we can see that even if they spend three days in jail, you know, their life will be really turned upside down based on a charge. Again, like this is like before they've been found guilty of any crime, before the facts have been looked into, it's all based on an accusation or a police stop. There's really no adjudication of the facts when it comes to this. And because of that, you know, someone is locked up. And we've seen it um, where people are locked up for not just a couple of days, but months. Now we're seeing people who have been inside for a year or more, especially with COVID. There are some people who have committed some crimes, you know, but they haven't had their chance to like go to court about those crimes. There are some people who it's like people use it as a, a way to like abuse their partners. You know, they'll they'll get in a fight. They'll call the police. They'll get the person locked up. They figure, oh, they'll get out if I just don't show up the court. It'll be fine. But like, they'll still be held in there a year. You know, and so like, and we see that a lot with people like using it as a way to like punish partners or something when they get in arguments. Um, 
people who are jealous of folks, you know, calling in on someone's like girlfriend or ex-girlfriend. It's all types of ways that people use the system to abuse other people because they know just with the accusation, the person will at least be locked up for like a couple months. They might not intend their life to be ruined, like losing their house, their kids and their job and all these things. But that's something that does happen. Another thing we see is that when people are held pretrial, they are much more likely to accept the plea deal, which is, this is a big thing. In Philadelphia, um, the vast majority of cases do not go to trial, whether it's a waiver trial before a judge or jury trial. People plead out. They wait and they accept plea deals from like the district attorney. And usually that comes with you pleading guilty to the crime, you'll get probation or some type of state supervision. And you're sometimes like labeled as a felon, like for life, because you took a plea deal, because that was your only way of getting out to get back to your children, to get back to your family, to get out of like jail. And we see that a lot, a lot of people who take these plea deals because that's the only way out. So we say like it doesn't make us safe for many things because it, it destabilizes people who are already living on the margins. People are leaving the housing, they're losing their children, they're being forced to do more desperate things to like be able to take care of their families, to be able to survive. It's pushing people into criminal activities because like now they have this record, it's harder for them to get a job. Um, when they do get out, you know, it, it follows them for life. You know, understanding how harmful and how coercive and how abusive and manipulative this system is and that it gets invisibilized. And so, you know, it's not talked about in the discussions of our political economy or the health of our community. It's usually then translated into these stigmas of, you know, Black folks don't know how to do nothing or get along or these communities are destitute or culturally deficient, right? And so um, you mentioned the the way that there's the shame and the stigma. And also I was really intrigued because I never heard it framed so pr- directly of this is now a weapon that is creating more intracommunal harm of like folks are using this system as an abusive tool. You know, we basically have a public torture factory that then can be used to escalate or as a power move in conflict. Or um, revenge or yeah. Yeah. Which is which is really is tragic, you know, to to hear. But but I I want to make some space to this notion of you said power building and base building and addressing the shame and taking the shift from expecting a good oriented prosecutor to lead us to better outcomes to we have to to make them and shift the political terrain. I'm curious, what does that work look like? And how is that community building sustained? How is the container to work through that shame organized and set up for for y'all's community? To be honest, that's just something that we are just starting to work on. The bail fund, we took a a hiatus from posting bails actively. We still managed to post bail for 100 people this past year in our hiatus. But like we were taking it to focus on our like strategy and take a look at what we're doing. Is it working? Are we doing what we say we're going to do? Or are we getting in the mood where we're just a service provider? Um, because it was sort of getting to a point where some of the people that we built out were looking to us like we were a part of the government or like we we're a big nonprofit with deep pockets. And, you know, because we also do mutual aid to help them, like, sort of stabilize when they come home to, like, pay for, like, utilities and back rent, things like that. And so people would say, oh, this is my my caseworker. And I'm like, I'm not a caseworker. <laughs> you know, that's not who I am. I, I know, like, we're a part of this group called the National Bell Fund Network. And so bell funds across the, the country have been thinking about this issue, um, like, how do we stay true to our abolitionist goals while still like, you know, helping to like reduce harm and serving the people who are caught up in the system. How do we balance that without becoming a social service provider? Um, And so talking about like building power, it's like, how do we move people from being a victim to being like a leader and like an activist towards a point where like mutual aid that we're giving and bill is part of that. 
is actually empowering them to be able to like focus on like being like a, a leader and, and working for change. Because like if you're worried about oh how are you going to pay the rent or feeding the kids or like how can I pay my boyfriend's like bail when I have to get him a lawyer, like you're not really going to be able to think about okay how can I like work with others to like move like the needle on this like issue in my community. Like you're not able to think about those other things because you're thinking about your immediate needs. And so like we're trying to like change our focus from that towards like putting people on this sort of like path to being a leader and how to like use our mutual aid work um and charity work to sort of like enable people to do that. So to be honest, I can't give like lots of details about how that's done because like we're trying to figure it out. We have to do things a little differently. I mean, it's not like we haven't had any wins. We have had wins and things are different now, like since we started, but it's like, we can't keep doing things the old way and get closer to our like abolitionist vision. Yeah. I think that's such a good lesson for the other experiments we've been talking to and for listeners about like, even when things are quote working, it's still important to be doing that type of reflection and like, how is this fitting toward the larger goal? Because sometimes we think about that kind of like pivot or reflection moment being of like, oh no, this didn't lead to where we wanted it to go or like this campaign failed or like to be actively providing bail for people, that is a real material need and that is countless people whose lives you've affected in a positive way. So how do you hold that while also recognizing like the danger of that kind of absorption um, and how do you remain challenging structure while still providing that need? I just, yeah, I wouldn't expect you to have the perfect answer for that. That's a really difficult question. <laughs> yeah. And, and you know, I, I think actually what you named, the naming the importance of hiatus towards reassessing. And so actually I want to dig into that of like, what provoked that? How did it feel? The balance of being on hiatus, but still bailing out 100 people. So you're pausing, but you're still active. I think a lot of times in the work, especially, you know, if we're looking at the, the abolitionist movement at large, it is in the last 10 years, it has reached a, a different popularity than what preceded. And so in these 10 years, there are projects that are eight, nine, six, seven years old, and the context of the world has changed. The, the relationship to people understanding some of the language has changed. The system has now observed the, the emergence of this movement and has adapted and grown and, and, and reinvested resources. And there's a counter movement trying to make it seem like bail fund is the reason why violence exists in the community in the first place. So all of this shifting terrain is happening. And so I think that's actually a very important lesson uh, for folks who are experimenting or looking to activate in experiments that there is often a real need for hiatus, for pivot, or even sometimes like sunset. Um, so can you just talk to us a little bit about the leading into hiatus, how it felt? Was it difficult? Did, did you come out of it with new perspectives or approaches? You kind of named some of that, but uh, a, a new understanding about the pace of how the work sometimes needs to, to rest. While shit is burning. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's right. The I, is that shit is burning around you. Sometimes you got to slow down. <laughs> I was thinking of like how to answer this without putting our business in the streets. Basically, because when we went on hiatus, the first time like we were in a moment of crisis before the murder of George Floyd, we were averaging like, you know, 100 people a year total being bailed out. And maybe in a year we might get like, if we're lucky, a, a million dollars in donations that we put out, you know, that we could put out on the streets and bail, but we weren't able to like bail out people who had high bail. So like the highest we would go maximum was like 10,000 for a person and that, that might tap us out, you know, but like $1,000, $2,000, dollars that was sort of our sweet spot that we could like relatively afford. And it was still like we could not help everybody who was locked up instantly with cash bail, but like we could do like a decent amount. But then like after the murder of George Floyd, suddenly a lot of people like discovered like this was a problem. And like we got donations from like all over the world, really. Like I remember we got a donation from Palestine, which is like, was really touching like for us, like in, in a message they sent along with it. And it's like, okay, it's not just the people on the country, but the world. And so like in one weekend, we got $3 million. And that was just blew our mind. And at the time we were all volunteer. I was working this job 
while I was working a full-time job. So they were subsidizing my work with the bail fund. I think they knew low-key, but like, <laughs> they're really great. They're also a nonprofit. So we were all volunteers doing this, but we became really burnt out because we were already working a lot with our full-time jobs doing the work. And then like George Floyd was murdered. We got all this funding. The uprisings happened. There was all this demand for like protester bails and we got all this money. So we're like, let's put this money out in the street as soon as possible so we started posting up to $100,000 for a person. And so things that we would not dream of being able to do like a couple of years ago. And so that meant in that one year, we built out 365 people. Under normal circumstances, like before COVID and now we can do it because things have gotten a little bit better. But like our process includes like doing a jail interview in a jail with the person requesting bail fund, um, doing calls with the family, like support calls for people. And so like we put a lot of like things on the front end before we post bail, like figuring out, okay, what type of support does the person need? Do they need emergency housing? Do they need treatment? How can we get all these things in order so they can be supported when they come out? So like work goes into like us being able to post bail, not just like also fundraising the money and like the act of going down to the courthouse, the post bail, it can be like an hour, two hour long process, like when we do post bail. And so we were doing that, like maybe like 10, 20 people a week and doing like enhanced mutual aid to help people with rent and like running around paying those things. And so it was a lot of work for us. So we were really burnt out um, by the year's end. And um, also, like I say, like we were fueled by like a love of each other. I love this is work and pizza and bullshitting. And because of COVID, we were no longer able to be together. We were not able to have pizza together and like talk shit to one another at the end of our meeting. So we were all doing this on, on calls, two hour long calls every week. And we became suspicious of one another. People were resentful, feeling they're doing too much work. I felt like I was doing too much work at one point And it got to a point where we thought maybe this thing is not going to work. And so we had to take a a, a long hiatus. I think a hiatus was forced on us um, because like we didn't want to fold it up, but we're like, we've got to like pump the brakes so that we can have this time to heal and like deal with our interpersonal conflict and building up trust again in our network so we can do this work. We brought in people to do a conflict transformation process. And this group came in, instead of doing a strategy, like strategic plan, it was a culture and strategy framework, you know? So it was like looking at like, okay, what's the culture within the Belfast? What do we want to see in the community? You know, a, a lot of things like how do we address conflict with one another and like what are good practices to do? So like, it was like a lot of like internal looking about like, not just like what we want to do and what is our strategy, but how do we, relate to one another that was really important to do. So like, I thought like we were unique that like, oh, we're just failing because like, you know, oh, there's all this mistrust and I'm so unhappy and it's so unique. And this is like across the board, like with all types of groups, especially progressive like activist groups are feeling the strain. And a lot of it is COVID. And, you know, to me, it felt like a cop up say, oh, it's COVID. It's like, no, actually COVID wasn't just like a horrible like plague that like was taking out a lot of people. It was also something that was really like harming like our, our culture and our structure. It was like not just like a, a physical virus, you know, in many sense. So c- coming out of it, I think we're better. Like I I didn't quit. <laughs> like I was like about to, I was like, I'm, I'm going home because I can't deal, you know, we're like, okay, this is how we're going to work. This is what we want to do. A lot of like reiterating our values and why you want to do this work in the first place and being able to talk to each other about that and like realizing that, okay, we are still aligned on these things. Um, you might have to change like how we do stuff because we're a lot different than that group of like 14 volunteers that started the bail fund. You know, we've got yeah, $7 million out there circulating, you know? So it's like, we're a much different place than we were when we started. And things are different. Like, I would say up until like George Floyd, like maybe for a year or so after that, people were like, oh yeah, this is great. And now people are like, I don't know, you guys are 
you're the ones that are making us unsafe. Like, how can you bail out these people who are criminals and are terrorizing our city? And, you know, things are changing. Like you said, like the whole tough on crime narrative, like has made a resurgence. And it's not just like a, a right wing talking point. There are a lot of like liberals and, you know, black leaders and black politicians who are saying the same things that the right has been saying for years. So like our work is a little bit different now. Yeah. Maybe we can talk a little bit about that. You know, we really make a point on the show to talk about the remaking work that's happening rather than the weight of the, the pushback being the central piece. But I think part of why we were excited to talk to you when we are is not just because of that tough on crime rhetoric has its resurgence, but because of the way that bail funds are being situated in that. And and I think kind of what to me seems like an apex of how that's happening is in Atlanta and, and seeing the way that folks working in a bond fund that's a similar structure to all these other networks all over the country, as far as I know, um, basically targeted with like a RICO case and had their doors busted down um, and being framed as being like conspirators to this larger criminal conspiracy for, you know, providing the services that they say they provide. <laughs> um, and, and so I, I don't want to be flippant about that. I mean, I think that's like a really big shift in the playing field. Um, and so I'm curious for you, one, on an emotional level, like what did seeing that news feel like in your body? And two, what are the realizations about how you'll have to maneuver or may want to maneuver that that change has caused for you? Yeah, I remember when I first heard about it and like I read some of the charges and I was like, this is stuff that like is normal that we do every day, that every nonprofit I've been at <laughs> does every day. It really helped, helped home to me that it's government repression. I remember like growing up, I wanted to be like a civil rights hero. You know, I wanted to be like, all the people I could write about, you know, the people who, like, were persecuted by the government, but they were fighting for, like, right. And it's like, yeah, those people weren't doing illegal things either, <laughs> like, but or they weren't harming people. It was very much realizing that, okay, well, I could actually be living like the people I've been looking up to <laughs> because, like, I could end up persecuted for, like, doing like this good work in the community is perfectly like legal is actually like trying to it's so weird also like growing up like my faith was really important to me and I wanted to be God's hands and feet and like I, I really took that like to heart and I was really hard on myself like what am I doing to serve others and thus serve God you know and so the bail fund was a really an answer to my prayers and that I could literally help set captives free I'm literally doing the stuff I've been thinking about since I was a little girl. And the people that you were reading about who are doing that work, they got persecuted for doing this stuff. And it's like, you might be like locked up for doing this work or like people are going to like curse you for doing this work. I never really thought about how that could be in actuality. I think it was like in the back of my mind. But seeing this is like, okay, this is happening to like my colleagues who are doing like the same type of work that I'm doing. That's real. So that's how it's been sitting with me personally. I know sometimes I don't think about it because there's a lot going on in my day and like with this work and with my family. But like when I think about it, it's just like, yeah, for us, it was like scary at the bail fund. But also we're thinking we're not that different from Atlanta Solidarity Fund in that we are in a very blue city and a very red state, most of Pennsylvania hates Philadelphia and what we're doing here. Like they're trying to like strip power from our DA and everything. And the legislator that they, they've introduced legislation to basically make bail funds illegal unless we like jump through all these hoops. You know, that was legislation that was brought up like a year or two ago. It didn't go anywhere, but like it could very well come back. You know, there wasn't really like a, a area of safety, like, oh, like we're good. That couldn't happen to us. Like we're, oh, the South. It was like, mm. No, that's like, <laughs> this is like Pennsylvania. So that could happen here too. And so, and it's also made us realize we're about to go on another sort of hiatus to like basically think about how we're implementing this planning that we just did. Now we really have to think about security, making sure that we're 
doing our work in ways that line up with the law. I would hope that these charges against the Atlanta Solidarity Fund don't go anywhere because they seem very baseless. We can't really prevent or guard against government repression, but we can have all our, our receipts together and like be on our P's and Q's about how we're filing and doing stuff and like how to balance that with like how we stay true to our values, taking care of our community while we're doing this and like getting our systems in place. So it sort of sucks in a way that like I just came from a security meeting. Our office in like a communal office space with other organizations who are different like social movement spaces, things that we haven't thought about. Cause like, oh, we want to be open and welcome everybody, but like we actually have to like take some care about like how we operate and move and stuff. And not out of the place of fear, but out of the place of like we want to be like able to like continue to show up for our communities. And so that means that we have to think about some things in different ways. Yeah. I, I hear these these now needed shifts and practices and these new awarenesses that need to be forefronted. And I, I wanna like kind of use that as a prompt. Again, you hear us talking metaphorically to the listeners and audience a lot because a part of what we want from this show is to help folks activate and to help folks who are aligned or who are agree or who have been present um to observe and to learn and to take seeds from these experiments, not to duplicate because everything has its own context and its own ecosystem and climate, uh, but to, to, to take some of those lessons forward. And so as I'm hearing you speak, as we're talking about the national context, it feels like to begin a bail fund or bond fund now would take much different practices than folks who started them in 2014, 15, 16, 17. And so whether from your experience or from things you were hearing in the the circulation in the national network, for somebody just in a, in a space that doesn't have an active bail fund and bond fund and they think that their home should have that, do you have any advice of how folks should maybe enter into that work or or things they should be conscious of that y'all weren't until practice forced you to be? Yeah, I think I would just talk to other groups who are doing similar work. Like I mentioned, there's this National Bail Fund Network, and it's like a group of like 80 plus immigration and criminal bail funds who basically you try to share best practices and information, sometimes like funding when like needs arise, but it's a really great clearinghouse for like information about how to get started, what things you might one to consider. Also, like the landscape is very different from this city. And in Philadelphia, I realized we were unique in that our public defenders are like on our side, our close partners. And in other cities, the public defenders are like almost adversarial to bail funds, you know, and it's like for us, it's like, I can't imagine that, but that's the ground. So it's like, I think like one, talking to other people who are doing this work. And then two, just take stock of like the rules and regulations in like your city. Cause I think when we started, it was off of this like call from song Southern is a new ground and Mary hooks. to like raise money to like bail out black mamas in time for mother's day. And so we're like, Oh, we can do it. And so we got together with a week to go and we raised all this money. And then I remember like, we didn't know how any of this worked really. And so we were running around like, so all the like banks in the city of this, you know, the certain branches to get like $2,000 here, $2,000 there. Cause we thought we had to pay it in cash. And like, I remember when I first started posting for the bell phone, once we were a thing, I was stuffing money in my bra. Cause I felt unsafe on the subway with like all this cash, like in my pockets. Like, I think they're going to know I have money. At one point I was like, I can't fit like $50,000 in my bra. Like I'm not that blessed. What I'm going to do, you know, realizing like how, what the rules are like, Oh, I could have paid with like a bank card or like I could pay with like a certified bank check. And, I don't have to carry like tens of thousands of dollars on me, you know, while I'm on the subway. Yeah, talking to people, finding out what is the layout in your in your town, like what are the rules of a posting bail? Where do you have to post bail? Like I don't think people should be afraid to start these efforts. They should just probably do some research to get an idea of like what it's gonna take and like to be okay with starting small. Bailing out one or two people that's a big deal. You might be like, oh, that's a small number. It's, you know, you guys have bailed out 800 and something people. It's like, well, we started with like 13 
other people start like with less, but that's still very impactful to those people and those family. And you're also like learning and you're going to learn from your experiences. Cause like a lot of the stuff that we've learned is like really particular to Philadelphia. I've learned so much about just how to navigate the bail office and the prisons and like all this stuff. It's like you only, you only really learn some of these things by doing. And because these structures are decentralized, like you said, it's going to be so different wherever people are. But I love the way you said, like, it is a big deal, one or two people, because in the same way we named up top, the the reverberations of locking somebody up affecting, you know, not just them, but their families, their networks, getting one to two people out affects so many people and makes so much more possible. And like you said, is a important learning process too. To that learning process to like, like Damon said, fumble through our metaphor here, you know, at the, at the tail end of an experiment, you kind of reach your conclusions. And I know some of what we've talked about are the questions that y'all don't have answers for yet, which is great. Um, but I'm wondering kind of at this point in the process, are there any conclusions you've reached about what the work y'all have been doing and like what bail funds have been doing across the country? What does that make possible in building safety for a world without police and prisons? It helps people believe that there could be a different way of doing things or even just like believing that like there are people who care about them. When I do the jail visit, like something I hear a lot is people are blown away that like we're actually a thing or like, why do we do this? Like what's in it for us? You know, because like we're not like making money from this. We're giving away money. Why do you care about me? You know, I get that a lot. You know, actual act of doing this work helps people believe because they can see that like a different world is possible. So I I think that's like a really important work of the bail funds. Like even we can't post bail to get everyone out of jail in Philadelphia for many reasons. I don't think we ever believed that we could do that. Like I remember when we started and people were really hip on bail funds in Philadelphia and a couple articles came out with us one guy talking to rich people about how just an investment of $3 million could like free everyone held on cash bail in Philadelphia at that time. Okay, that's true. But like, also that the jails are going to fill right back up again. Like once you get them out, they're just going to put more people in the spot. Like that's not changing the system in any way. But like, yeah, I think it helps people realize that there's like a different possibility. And also that there are other people who like care about the situation. Um, and also who Look at that situation without shaming them. It's not like I'm trying to figure out if they're good or bad. Like some people used to like felt compelled to like talk about like why they shouldn't be here or like why they don't deserve this or blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, well, I don't believe that any of you deserve this. And that was sort of like a wild type of statement to make, you know, like I don't believe that anyone deserves to be held in a cage, especially you want us like rat and roach infested with mold and like water leaking from the ceilings and no clean water in like that's hot Philadelphia with no air condition where everyone had asthma you know just like I don't think anyone should be treated this way I don't think anyone should be treated worse than a dog in a, a kill shelter you know just that sort of thing I think is like revolutionary and I think that's also like what we're trying to do now is like okay how do we work on like changing the narrative for the people that we're bailing out and for like other people in the city trying to take back the ground from the people who are like on tough on crime, not by like just explaining how, you know, Oh, your things don't work, but just talking about, okay, well this other way is possible. This is what it is. I reject your permits altogether. Like we're going to like work on demonstrating something new. Wow. That, that's, that's, that's so beautiful. And I want to just offer you an invitation for folks who are in or near the Philadelphia area. Um, on that notion of the actual system change or about the the cash bail system in Pennsylvania at large, how can folks join the effort or support or be more present and not just maintaining, right? Like it costs $3 million or $5 million, $7 million to get folks out. How can folks support sustaining that system change work that is really needed and actually doing the demand that is that you named at the top of this conversation? Um. Yeah, I think people could just, like, follow, like, the work that we're doing and engage with us. PhillyBailout.org is our website. And, like, Philly Bail is our handle on social media. But also, like, the Philadelphia Bail Fund, 
like I know that they also recently made the shift to like really trying to do base building and leadership development um, and, and doing a lot of public education about, okay, this is how Bell works. This is what we're facing. And this is what we're doing. PhillyBellFund.org is their um, website. And Philly Bell Fund, I think, is their handle on social media. But there are also groups like Amistad Law Project. Um, they're doing a lot of work around like trying to get non-police first responders to mental health emergencies. Amistad Law Project is doing a lot of great work in Amistad Movement Power. CABI, the Coalition Against Death by Incarceration. There are a lot of groups who are doing like great work. If you even like look up Philly Bell out and just see who we follow and start following them and you can sort of like get an idea of like the landscape in Philadelphia region and like who's doing work that work it's not so much you have money to give but like time or even just changing the conversations you're having with family and friends you can like learn more about the work that you're doing and why but just yeah starting at, out on social media and just putting an ear out I love that Instagram stalking is a transferable skill <laughs> So for those of you that it's have, a transformative uh, skill, even, yeah, you know, have learned how to go through somebody's followers and connect the dots, do, check out Philly Bell. If out, you've been honing that in. practice, yeah, exactly. Let's connect it to some theory here. Theory of change. Uh, Candace, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us and sharing not just the answers that y'all have reached, but the questions that you're asking. I think they're really important questions and. I'm really appreciative of your time and generosity. Thank and, you. And I, and I want to offer affirmation. We call it gas usually. <laughs> I want to gas you up because um, you've named how much this work has grown. You've named working to sustain or maintain through this earth altering pandemic that happened. You named being at a place where like questioning if I want to quit this. And even if you quit tomorrow, I'm very grateful and encouraged by your dedication, by your sacrifice, by your spiritual grounding and commitment to the service of people and humanity and life. And so I want to thank you and your team and your community, not just for having this conversation with us and with our listeners, but for really the work that you've done and the impact that you've had on thousands of people in your community. And it's it's not unnoticed and it's definitely appreciated. So thank you for your commitment. Thanks. I appreciate that. Yeah, and thanks for having me on, talking to me and putting up with my, my ramblings. <laughs> this is Perfect. a rambling safe space. We have made time uh, to ramble. This is the time to do it. <laughs> an emergent career off of a well-placed ramble. <laughs> All right, y'all. We're back. Big thanks to Candace for taking the time to talk with us, share her thoughts especially as she moves through grief. I know, you know, sometimes it's tough to do this kind of big picture thinking while you're holding that grief. So really appreciate her taking that time and sharing her energy with us. And now, if we're holding to our methods, it's time for the peer review. Hoping I don't offend all my peers. Eva, what did you hear? What jumped out to you? This was such a critical episode to me um, for this season, following up a little bit on our premiere for season two with Makia Green from Harriet's Wildest Dreams. You know, I think as as abolitionist podcasters, <laughs> <laughs> whatever the hell it is that we're doing here, <laughs> um, as as experimenters in this this grand abolitionist experiment, I think that. We talk so much about police and we talk so much about prisons. So it's been really great to bring in a lot more conversation about courts and court support. And I think bail funds are a crucial part of the conversation. And I also just really appreciate how Candace talked about the evolution of their theory of change. Mm. You know, we come back to that constant that we love to talk about, which is relationships, base building, pooling resources. I mean, so many of the bail funds out there are such an example of how you can do this in communities that are abolitionist and reformist, how you can bring people kind of along down that spectrum with you. Um, and I think that, you know, as we work to defund police and prisons, you know, we at Interrupting Criminalization are really pushing people to challenge and think beyond all carceral institutions, which includes criminal courts and includes dismantling all the parts of that prison industrial complex that we're trying to hit on in the episodes here. 
Yeah, you know, you mentioned the Harriet's Wildest Dreams episode, and I think about the long list of their collaborators in that episode who work with them on the like on the alternative first response teams and how many different spaces the names on that list inhabit. And it's always just motivating to me to see places where people have figured out how to work across organization and sometimes across ideology toward the same goals. And, you know, I'm really glad we got to talk a little bit about like the the body and somatic experience for Candace of learning about the news, what was happening to the Belfund's comrades in Atlanta. It's not something that we've made a lot of space for, but as we interrupt criminalization, the boundaries of what is criminal will continue to be shifted on us. And Candace, I think, did a really good job of talking about how to adapt to that, but also was just really honest about what does it feel like to see those goalposts shift and find yourself you know, closer to the middle of those crosshairs. And that's something that, you know, could be a deterrent. And I, and I understand that that's scary. We've all had moments where all of a sudden you go, oh, I'm in the middle of this. I'm not on the side anymore. But I also think the more honest we can be about what it feels like, and in some ways how motivating that can be to do what you know is right, even when the boundaries of legality are shifting. Yeah, I think we need to make room for that because that's going to keep happening, you know? Absolutely. I mean, I think that this episode and this timing is partly, you know, because we want to get that information out there. We want to give a platform for organizers to get that information out there. But this is also a love letter to the bail funds, you know, that we interact with in our communities that we support, that we know about. This is a huge space of organizing with lots of room to grow in the country and a growing need, you know, as we face. Um, heightened criminalization as we face the trials and tribulations that are to come in the next couple of years and that are going to continue to come. What happened at Atlanta was a terrifying escalation against organizers, and it was meant to drain morale and to drain resources. So I think, you know, part of highlighting this experiment and part of Candace's bravery in sharing their experience, this is all our love letter to the people who are getting our people out. One of our, our fellows at Interrupting Criminalization, Shira Hassan, said this um, in a training that we were doing recently. And I've heard her repeat this often. We have to be in love with each other's survival. And I think, you know, when I see people participating in community bail funds, that's the feeling that I get that this is a demonstration of being in love with each other's survival. Like this like is not, you know, glamorous work for the most part. You know, there's 400,000 people locked up in pretrial detention today. You know, we're bailing out, you know, hundreds and thousands of people around the country. And you talk to any bail fund organizer and they have a similar story to, you know, what Candace and their collective and their group has gone through. It's a, it's a lot to take on. Um, and, and, you know, that's without militarized SWAT raids, looking at your receipts for posters and flyers and, and whatnot. So, I mean, I think that we need to be cognizant of this work as it's happening, of the value that it holds in our ecosystem as abolitionists, of the value it's going to hold as criminalization continues to increase. And we need to show Candace McKinley, the Philly Community Bail Fund, and all of our comrades doing this work a lot of love right now. So holding you in the light, Candace, we really appreciate the work that you're doing. And listeners, a couple of the ways that you can show that love is one, to plug in and volunteer and help, and two, to donate money. You know, when we say Community Bail Fund, you're part of that community. Up top, we said the info for the Philly Community Bail Fund. That's phillybailout.org. But we encourage you to find a bail fund near you. We'll put the link in the show notes, but if you go to communityjusticeexchange.org, there's a directory of community bail funds all over the country. Find one, plug in, give what you can. On top of that, I'd like to share a couple of resources that Interrupting Criminalization has going on. As we discussed a little bit at the top of the episode, you know, we're focusing on criminal courts as part of the prison industrial complex and thinking about what strategies organizers can employ to start defunding the criminal courts. So if you go to beyondcourts.org, you can find more information about that. And if you are in a bail fund or interested in participating with a bail fund, I'd highly recommend another resource that I see put out called, So Is This Actually an Abolitionist Proposal or Strategy? It's a collection of resources to aid in evaluation and reflection. And in that collection of resources, there is a whole section on courts and prosecution. 
So it's about court watching. It's about abolitionist principles and campaign strategies for prosecutor organizing, community bail funds, pretrial risk assessment. You got it. So check out that link in the show notes. And as Kiss said, donate to your bail fund. I was going to give you a whole compliment on how pithy and short all of the interrupting criminalization names are. And then you hit us with like the abolitionist dude, where's my car name as well. Um, So but both of those (laughs) resources sound fantastic. Um, And we'll make sure that they're in the show notes below. Eva, how else can folks plug into the work of One of Me and IC? You can always find us at millionexperiments.com. And we're on social at Million Experiments and also at Interrupt Crim. Plug into the work of Ergo at ErgoRadio.com. You can also check out our new umbrella organization, Respair Production and Media at RespairMedia.com. Make sure that you subscribe, like, follow, rate, and review One Million Experiments wherever you get those podcasts that you love so much. All right, y'all. We'll see you next month with another experiment. Much love to the people. Peace.